0: Good morning, Church of the Canyons. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Chris Rojas. I'm one of your elected elders here at Church of the Canyons. Um, today, is my, it's my joy to be able to present to you the inspired word of God. Uh, let's, let's do what's appropriate and give this morning to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you today to guide our hearts and minds to be in conformity with your precious word. May the worries of this week, the sins we have committed against our fellow man and the sins that have been committed against us be entrusted to you. We give those over to you. May you allow us to focus and put aside our plans for this upcoming week and even today's planned events uh, for this moment so we may hear your words that stir the soul, which bring and sustain new life. May you cause your thoughts, which are far superior to ours, to reign supreme through the text that we engage with today. May my meditations and my discipline to prepare this presentation of your word be a blessing to you and to your people. May we all seek to honor and glorify you. We trust in your Holy Spirit to accomplish these things. It's in your Son's holy name, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Our text today is in the book of Matthew. Um, we've, been, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we'll, we'll be reading in uh, verses 27 to 32. Uh, if, you, if you walk away from today with anything, um, I would want it to be that Jesus' words, I say to you, take aim at the heart primarily, then at outward behavior. I'll say that again. Jesus' words, I say to you, Take aim at the heart primarily, then outward behavior. Before we uh, wade into the deep waters of our text today, I'd like to provide some context um, to these rich words that Jesus spoke, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to do that, I think it's helpful that I walk you through a quick side-by-side comparison of the ministry of John the Baptist and the early ministry of Jesus. Uh, both ministries began with a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah. John is found in chapter 3, verse 3. If you want to go there, we'll be in, kind of hovering in that area. So uh, you can turn your Bibles there. Uh, for, it reads, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's John's job to make the, the paths for Christ straight. And Jesus' prophecy is found in chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. I love to hear pages rustling. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, the, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. We know that light to be Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Both ministries were marked with the preaching of the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And both ministries were marked with the intent to baptize. John's would be of water, and Christ's would be of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Both ministries would target the Hebrews, and finally, both ministries would challenge the religious structure that was built around god 's law, not by God but by men whose wish was to suppress the truth i 'd like to uh, to take you to john 's words so that you can hear him confront the religious leaders who tried to seize the momentum of the movement and the moment for their own glory. Let's turn to chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the nicest thing that he says to them. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 7 through 12. So listen to that imagery, and I want you to hold on to verse 10 where it says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John had a true disdain for the religious leaders. This was a spiritual reckoning that marked John's ministry with regard to holiness. Not only was he pursuant to make paths straight for the Lord by calling for repentance, but he was protective and guarded against what the religious leaders intended. Their intent was to profiteer from from God's prescribed holiness to his people by exalting themselves as keepers of the law. Listening to John, uh, it's no wonder that he ended up being imprisoned shortly after this moment. John was bold against sin. His message was to repent. And it gained him nothing except to see that the people of God had their hearts turned to the kingdom of heaven. He was bold against the religious leaders and even the king of the time. That'd be King Herod. Matthew 14 tells us that King Herod at that time had John arrested for condemning the king's marriage. Well, that sounds strange, except that he married his brother's wife after divorcing his wife for no good reason. He would later have John's head removed and put on a platter to satisfy his new daughter-in-law's Wishes after she entertained him with with seductive dancing. It's a gruesome end to a God-glorifying ministry, but John never backed down. His message and motive were clear and simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's a reason that the ministry of Jesus and John were so similar. It It was the provocation of the Holy Spirit as the administration of the mystery was being carried out. That would be the revelation of the church through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Both John and Jesus' ministry operated similarly, which included the disdain for the environment that the religious leaders had created. It allowed for such atrocities like King Herod marrying, divorcing, and marrying his brother's wife. uh, I want you to hold your finger in, in... Matthew 5, we're going to return, or this area of Matthew, we're going to return to it. But I'd like you to skip over to Matthew 23, where we can look and see Jesus' disdain for these men. Matthew 23, and we'll go to verse 13. We're going to look at just the first part of each one of these sentences that Jesus proclaims to these men. Verse 13 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 16, Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I I think you're getting the theme here verse 25 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites and verse 27 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites these are seven woes of christ to the religious leaders these are curses the seven seven curses that line up identically with the exact opposite of the seven blessings that are given to us in the beatitudes to the, to the righteous, So, woe to the unrighteous in these exact ways. Woe to the, or blessed are you the righteous in these exact ways. They, they're pitted against one another. If we look at verse 13, just to hover there for one second, uh, it gives us a hint as to why Jesus had such disdain for these religious leaders. It reads... But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. How contradictory of a message is that to the one that Jesus and John preached? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These vipers, they worked to prevent people from entering They had the spirit of the Antichrist. Let's let's move back to chapter 5. So now having read the seven woes in chapter 23, what we hear Jesus saying in verse 20 of chapter 5, it gives us a little more clarity as to what Jesus' heart is as he's saying these things. Let's look at verse 20 of chapter 5. It says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we understand. Hypocrisy doesn't get you there. But there is a righteousness that does. These aren't polite words. These are not pro- these, this is a proclamation of war. If you're thinking of the imagery of Jesus that gets toted around of, of a happy-go-lucky, wispy-haired, doughy-eyed gentleman who's just kind of nice to everybody. You're, you're seeing him all cor- all incorrectly. It's with the backdrop of the filth that existed in the synagogues and in the public arena with Herod that we can get a sense of what his listeners, both near, those are the disciples that drew near to him on the mount, and far, those the crowds who stayed At a distance, which absolutely included the religious leaders, excuse me, the religious leaders. The religious leaders had incubated the word of God. They had put a basket over the light of the law. They had made the salt tasteless. They had made murder, adultery, divorce, false testimony, revenge, and hatred permissible through ordinances. These are the things that Jesus addresses on the Sermon on the Mount. They were current atrocities in view of the people. And I cannot read chapter 5 as it talks about these things without thinking of the current events of John the Baptist, who would be murdered because of Herod's adultery and divorce on account of the false testimony brought against John for the wife of Herod's revenge and hatred. All of this was supported by the religious leaders and their ordinances. And don't get me wrong, I'm not asserting that Jesus was fighting uh, some kind of social fight about current events, though he wasn't blind to them. The message he preached was clear, and that's that Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And the call was to repent and be conformed to the perfection of God the Father. And we read that in chapter five, that last verse of chapter five, if you want to flip over to that, page four or verse forty-eight, says, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a tall order. This is clearly an impossible task for man to do with outward behavior. To borrow from Scripture for Living, which by the way, Shameless Plug meets every Wednesday. Led by Dwayne and Fred. You should go. Um, This is heart work. This is heart work. His aim was at the heart primarily, then at outward behavior. So now we dive into our text for today. Chapter 5, verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Here, Jesus is addressing his disciples. These are those whose attention has been stripped from the religious leaders and given to Jesus. What you don't see here is a contradiction to the ultimate Testament or the, excuse me, the Old Testament scriptures, or even an address to the ordinances that have been set up by the religious leaders. If, if I had been Jesus, I would have been more like Yoda and been like, I, I don't do Yoda, Yoda voices always sounds like Kermit the Frog. but it would be, it, it would be you need to unlearn what you've learned. But he doesn't do that. Remember when uh, I asked you to pay attention to John's uh, imagery that he paints in verse 10 of chapter 3. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What Jesus is doing here is using the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, to strike cleanly at ground zero. He levels the fruitless infrastructure that had been installed by the religious leaders. What appeared to be a tree of life that would sustain turned out to be a parasite. A wart on the gospel of truth. What Jesus will say next will be a precursor of how he will strip the power of the religious leaders. He will call the people to a higher standard of righteousness. A righteousness that could not be governed by mankind or developed through ceremony because it is aimed at the heart primarily. Then outward behavior. Verse 28 reads, but I say to you, there it is, I say to you, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I would venture to say, flip that around as well. Man to woman, woman to man. Having uttered the very word of God, Jesus authoritatively interprets the scripture. He takes the mighty weapon of his, the word of God, and cuts away at the ordinances. He reveals that scripture is there to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No longer is it to be as the edge of a cliff where you can peek over and wonder what's at the bottom. No, the law is there to tell you to run, (laughs) run away, flee for your life. Verse 29 and 30 says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's be clear about what this is saying and what it's not saying. It's not saying that we're to start mutilating ourselves as a tribute to the righteousness of God that he's calling us to. That'd be an aim at the outward behavior primarily. What it is saying is that there's an eternal implication for sin. And how a person behaves on the outside is a strong indication of their heart's attitude. With scripture, we can analyze ourselves from the extremities all the way to the heart. That's not something anyone can do for you. That takes spending time in God's word and meditating on it and seeing how it applies to you. And as you encounter physical problems that prevent you from living to the perfection of God the Father, take those physical items and do away with them. Put up safeguards. What Jesus is talking about to these people is more, is more current now than ever before. We have pornography as a pandemic it is a worldwide, COVID was nothing compared to what this is doing to us. It's ravaging homes. It's completely redefining the structure of the family. It's making numb what should be vibrant and alive. In January of 2021, it was reported that there are four and a half million websites dedicated to pornography. 71% of our tweens and 84% of our teens encountered nudity or content of sexual nature online. As of February 2021, two porn sites were on the top 10 of all websites visited globally. And there was a third one that's at the 13th. One site that I won't mention the name is recorded to to that users watch 5.8 billion hours. That was in 2019, and porn is viewed. Let's let's not be so narrow minded by both men and women. The ratio is 70 to 30. This is not just about men. The average age when children come in contact with this is 11 years old. There's a lot of staggering statistics. There's one, there's one more that I just wanted to say. There's a new... There's a, you know, man is really good at inventing evil. They're always looking at the, nec- the next invention. And VR porn is right on the horizon. Is expected in 2025 to become by itself a $1 billion industry. Brothers and sisters, gazing at a woman or a man and craving them is adultery of the heart. We need to involve scripture in our lives and our children's lives. We need to take aim at the heart and make necessary modifications around us to honor the good work that Christ has done in us maybe that means eliminating access to the internet it's hard but it's possible maybe it's setting up certain times where we can use it or places pornography for sure must never be a part of our lives it's not a private activity not only is God there, but you walk away from every encounter changed. It's not harmless. And all the studies show that viewing it programs the brain for less pleasure when the real intimate situations occur. This goes for both men and women. So, We can adjust our outward situation so that we can better achieve what's happening in our heart, which is purification. I love what Danny was reading today about what John MacArthur said, that confession has to do with uh, uh, fidelity and sincerity and pureness and humility. We need to be very mindful about our particular situations and work towards fostering environments that better produce a, a righteous behavior. There's another example that I'd like to just kind of propose, and that's that who you spend time with is vital. It's imperative that we make sure that we put up safeguards so that we don't find ourselves isolated with somebody that we might bring down or that might bring us down. Those situations, they will set up an inner turmoil for the rest of your life and their life. Even if you end up together, there's a conflict that will always be there and always be a scar, and you'll have to work around that. But how much better for your ministry to the Lord if we stay, remain, our, remain pure and avoid those situations? It's a premeditated thought. Um, there's, one last, there's one modification that I, I highly recommend. It's a must. And that's to strip away privacy. What do I mean by that? It means find yourself a friend of the same gender, male to male, female to female, to confess your lusts to. Not so that you'd be in bondage to them or for judgment, but for freedom. If you've never confessed to a fellow believer your lusts, you've never experienced what freedom there is in doing that. I encourage you and I beg you To seek that person out, that one person that you can trust, that you can begin a valuable facet of your relationship with them. Let's listen to uh, what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. It's these types of things that the word of God is good for, to give us clarity for our hearts that are desperately wicked and as an outward response to their inner work, make outward modifications. Turning back to our text, I want you to listen to the progression in Jesus' words. This is in verse 28, if you can go there. It mentions the heart. In verse 29, it mentions the eye. And in verse 30, it mentions the hand. Adultery isn't something that you fall into. There's intentionality to it. There's this phrase of falling in love. And look, I I don't want to smear anyone's relationship or how it started. But what I can tell you is that if your relationship is founded on something clumsy, like falling, there's some serious dangers ahead for you. If you can fall into love, then very little will keep you from falling out. Love is a choice. Love is a commitment. Love is abandonment of self. Love, and I mean real love, sacrificial love. The only love that stands the test of time is of God. He is the very nature of it, and he has made us relational on account of of the image he has designed us to bear. Aaron Miller talked about our worldview with scripture as our lens. It says that we were made in the image of God. That gives each one of us an intrinsic value that's internal. When we allow for our lusts to control us, we begin to see each other as objects. Some kind of inventory that's like sick For your own personal pleasure. Have you ever thought about why Adam and Eve, after the fall, sewed together fig leaves? It's because the sin that entered humanity, for the first time, they experienced lust and they needed to guard themselves against one another. They were ashamed. With sin in the picture, our vision is foggy, and God's beautiful design is lost. When we move away from inclining our ear to God's word, we lose direction. When we rely on our lusts, as James talks about, then we can expect to be dragged away and enticed. We can expect to be falling all over the place, like a fish on a deck. I don't know if you've ever seen jellyfish in the ocean. They're beautiful, but you remove that jellyfish, and it looks like somebody's used Ziploc bag. We're the same way. We need to be where God wants us, where we perform the best, and that's in his word, applying it to our lives and safeguarding ourselves so that we can perform the way he has designed us to perform. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be intentional about our heart's attitude. What Jesus is doing in these words is connecting the dots that the religious leaders failed to do. So, keep your thumb in Matthew 5, but I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 and 27. It says, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put de- devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now let's, let's return to chapter 5 where we see that Jesus is at it again wielding the chopping axe that John referred to, he takes another swipe and destroys yet another fruitless tree of the religious leaders. That's the promotion of divorce. Let's read verses 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. Similar to adultery, man's sinful hardened heart took God's best of designs and made a mockery of it. In the practice of keeping the Hebrews physically healthy and giving a divorced woman the ability to legally wed again, God allowed for the certificate of divorce. This was not God's promotion of divorce, but the religious leaders, they led the people to believe that. Romans 1, 21 and 22 says this about those men. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. If they had a desire to honor God, they would have leaned on Malachi 2 verses 15 and 16, which says, take heed then to your spirit and let no one, including you, be treacherous against the wife of your youth. I would say that, flip that around too, of your husband, of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Or they could have gone to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, which says, The man said, That's Adam, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and that they shall become one. The two become one. What a mystery and what a blessing. These wicked men, vipers, according to John, had made a sport out of these legal loopholes and treachery was their life source. With the knowledge of God and his passion for marriage, they tried to even ensnare Jesus in Matthew 19. And Jesus, honoring his father, leans heavily on Genesis, the Genesis passage and says the famous line that should be in every wedding, Matthew 19, 6. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate and in that same reply to the religious leaders Jesus indica- uh, indicates that many if not all of them had divorced their wife how shameful of those religious leaders and they glorified in it so let's return let's return to verse 32 But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Christ's words here are designed to set the record straight. His statement is ultimately rejecting divorce as a way of life. Without nullifying the reality that adultery is a legitimate case for divorce, he upholds that any other reason for divorce is violating the law. The insights that our Lord is giving us are timeless and unchanging interpretation of God's law. They were appropriately said so that the great light of God's word would shine unhindered. I think it's important for, for some clarity for a moment. Jesus is the one saying all of these things. And he's saying them to the future church the one that he's going to purchase, the one that he's going to spill his blood on the cross for his perfect, righteous blood that knew no sin, but became sin for us so that the church would become his bride. That's you and me. If you have bowed your knee to the Lord, the Lord Jesus and honored him as God. If that's, if that's you, you're part of the church. You're part of his bride. And my dear friends, if you're anything like me, you're a sinner. And though God the Father does not see us as sinners because of the work that was accomplished on that cross, we know it's a daily confession of sin. Not for daily salvation in terms of spiritual uh, new life. Once, Once in God's hand, Nobody can take you out. But we, when we sin, we are taking the perfect lamb, the perfect lamb's purchase and sullying it. Praise the Lord that his grace is sufficient to cover all of those forever and ever and evermore till the day when he comes back and sin is no more. I just want to put that out there. We are an adulterous people. So uh, in Psalm 14, one through three, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable sins. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside Together they have been corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. And then James two ten through 11, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And this is terrible news. For you and me. Because as Matt Davis's sermon last week highlighted in Matthew 5.22, it says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So with that said, sin has gripped us all and we are all guilty of breaking all law. If the standard is what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Then we're toast. Meant for the fires of hell. If only there was one who could remove the offenses. Please turn to Romans 5, verse 18 through 21. Hmm, the pages of God rustling. That is mighty. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's the penalty. Even so, through one act of righteousness, Christ's death on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam in that tree, the many were made sinners, and that's you and me, Even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous, that's the church. The law came in so that transgression would increase. That's the testament. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as a result, Romans 8 says to us, therefore, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we, re- we read through this list of ideal characteristics in the Sermon on the Mount, and we, and we can rest assured, because Christ maintained all of these perfectly. He is the fulfillment of the law. And he is the bridegroom who has paid the price for his bride, the church. And as adulterous as we members can be against our Lord, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. We are now purchased by the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so rich. We hold in our hands and our hearts the full canon of scripture that never loses its value. Every bit of it counts to reveal to us your will for our lives. It is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and you use it to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your words, I say to you, take aim at our hearts primarily, then outward behavior. May the reading of your word return with reward of a people who obey your voice and keep your covenant, knowing that we have been secured as your own possession among all the people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thank you for the effective ministry of your son, Jesus Christ. You've empowered your church with the ability to please you and to honor you by glorifying your son. May that be our heart's desire. May our gaze continually be on you through the study of your word so that our feet would not turn left or right. May we be fierce against sin and legalism in our own hearts. May our faith not be superficial like the Pharisees. May the inward work that you have done and continually do reflect itself in the outward behavior as we work out our salvation. May we gain dominion over our fleshly lusts that plague us now until the day you return to do away with the works of the evil one. May your people unite as one and through earnest confession learn to be a strength for their brother and sister, to offer healing, grace, and protection. May our families be bolstered by husbands and wives, honoring one another, recognizing the image bearers we are individually and how our marriage models Christ's relationship with this church. May we put treachery away and be gracious towards one another. May we flee from the corrupted thoughts of wickedness that tempt us to give license to sin. Jesus, you are the perfect king. It is by your grace that we submit you to today. I pray that if there's a soul who has heard this message, who has been enslaved by lusts or enslaved by lies of self-righteousness, I pray that you cause a mighty work in them to be humbled and submit to your grace. Let them be encouraged to come and talk to, to me or to any member of this body. Lord, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for you to come quickly. We recognize that hour is hastening when we shall be forever with you in the kingdom of heaven where disappointments, grief, and fear are gone, where sorrow is forgot and love's purest joy is restored. May we in the meantime hold fast to the certain hope.